Warning, the following contains discussion of domestic violence, human trafficking, and sex trafficking, which may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Loudspeaker. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Menares, and you're listening to the We Podcast, where together we find inspiration, encouragement, and growth through stories and real talk. Here we navigate the messy human experience together. We raise our voices and speak our truth. In this space, we value the conversations that broaden our perspective and help us fully understand that we are connected, we are capable of growth, and that we are not alone. Are you ready? Let's get real. You're listening to episode number 95 with Megan Lundstrom. In this episode, I get to have a really important conversation with Megan. Megan is the founder of the Avery Center, which focuses on research and consulting uh, dedicated to survivor-centered academic applied research on the commercial sex trade. This is an organization that's dedicated to economic empowerment of survivors of domestic sex trafficking and specializes in programming and advocacy in rural areas. Megan is very, very knowledgeable about human sex trafficking. She delivers trainings to organizations all over the United States. She is involved in multiple organizations that are really working on the intervention and education around this topic. And she has also received multiple awards. Megan is doing research that is really helping in this area. She is also very actively involved in her nonprofit organization, the Avery Center, and with the victims that are going through their programs. I really love that Megan shares with us a lot of the myths around human trafficking, a lot of the things that we should know that we should be looking for. A lot we talk about the conspiracy theories around sex trafficking that have really been prevalent, you know, in the last year or couple of years and what that really means to the actual victims who are being trafficked. She is a survivor of trafficking and so she tells us about her experience. She tells us about how this has affected her and how we can make changes, how we can help and join in on the fight against human trafficking. So I really can't wait for you to hear this conversation. I feel like it's a deeply, deeply important conversation. So here we go. So you are the founder of Free Our Girls, and that started in 2014. Free Our Girls is now the Avery Center. We just went through a name change and rebranding this year in the midst of COVID. And so, yeah, we just added uh, a research arm, academic research arm to our existing direct service programs. But before we dive into that, I, I'd love to just have you really start out with your story because 
where you are now, what you're doing, all the amazing work you're doing really has so much to do with your story and what you've come through. I was born and raised in Greeley, Colorado and grew up kind of in a average middle-class family, very involved parents. And I have a younger sister and nothing that was just, you know, super out of the ordinary or would have necessarily been a big indicator. I ended up getting pregnant just out of high school and was married to an abusive alcoholic for five years. So my two older kids are from my first marriage and the abuse that happened in that relationship really set the stage, just normalized the power and control kind of that abuse cycle of of this outburst and then this repair and, and then those tensions building. So that was very normalized in intimate relationships by the end of that marriage. After about five years, I realized that it just, it was not a healthy situation for myself and my kids. And uh, my ex-husband still struggles with addiction to this day. So in my attempt to get away from that relationship, I decided to move down to Denver. And at, at that time, didn't really know, but I removed myself from what little support network I did have still at that time. It was within just a couple months that I met a guy who I thought was Prince Charming and really swept me off my feet, showered me with love and attention and gifts and spent time with my kids. And then within just a few months of dating him, he had groomed me and began trafficking me on Backpage. And so I, at the time, I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought, you know, the domestic violence piece was, like I said, very normal, but I, I didn't have language to describe what was happening to me. I was told that I was involved in prostitution or escorting or like sugar daddy situations. I didn't know that it was trafficking. It was obviously very confusing and lots of ups and downs emotionally and psychologically, but really just trapped. And so I ended up being stuck in trafficking situations for about five years in my early twenties. And in December of 2012, I was able to finally escape and relocate back home. And that's really where my healing journey started and really got into the work, started to get into the work that I do to this day as a result of those experiences. So what does that mean to escape? I think people hear being trafficked and, and they have, I think people have a lot of assumptions, yeah. you know, about the, the kind of people who are trafficked or what that looks like exactly. And so can you kind of talk about maybe some of those assumptions and then also give us a good, a better idea of what does that mean? Like, how hard is it to get out? How is that intertwined to make you feel like you can't leave? I feel like, especially right now, human trafficking, the kind of the awareness around it is having a moment in uh, society and which is really great. I'm so glad that we're having more conversations, unfortunately, with kind of so many conversations happening and so much of it happening over social media, there's so many stigmas and misconceptions and just like gross misinterpretations of what trafficking is and how it happens. So I think one of the most common misconceptions is that trafficking is the exact same thing as a stranger abduction. And stranger abductions do happen in the United States very, very, very rarely. Super scary when it happens. Most kidnappings and abductions that do happen are actually by 
somebody who the, the child or the victim knows. And most kidnappings and abductions ultimately are not for the purpose of trafficking. So not to dismiss that they're happening because they are happening and not to say that there isn't an intersection with trafficking because there is. However, trafficking is for the most part, 95% of the time, something completely different. So that's a big misconception is I know a lot of people see things about, you know, a, a, a child that was almost kidnapped at Ikea or somebody that was almost kidnapped in a parking lot of a Walmart or a Target or some big box store. And those stories are so hard to navigate because you see them word for word shared in different cities. So you know that this is actually probably a viral social media post and somebody trying to gain attention on social media. It's not necessarily an accurate story. But on top of that, the labeling of those situations of being trafficking is really harmful. So I like to use the analogy of a frog and placing a frog in a pot of boiling water. So if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it's going to hop out because instantly its entire system says, we're in danger, get out of this situation. If you put a frog in a pot of room temperature water and gradually increase the heat over time, that frog will actually cook to death because it will slowly attempt to adjust to the environment that it's in until that environment gets so dangerous. But by that time, it's too late. That frog has, has cooked itself. So in much the same way, trafficking situations typically start with a grooming process. And this can most commonly, we see this happen with family members, intimate partners, classmates, colleagues. So it's somebody that the victim already knows at some level, somebody in their neighborhood, somebody that they go to school with, and it's a slow process. So it's getting to know that individual over time learning what their vulnerabilities are, building trust, establishing themselves as a person that is capable of fulfilling, meeting basic needs. So there's that relationship that happens before any abuse and exploitation happens. And so when you think of that frog analogy, by the time the victim actually realizes this is a really dangerous situation, I have to get out. It's oftentimes too late or perceived as being too late. That victim is trapped in this web of vulnerabilities, they're trapped maybe by blackmail, by fear and shame, by just lack of other options. So not having access to housing and transportation and food, those basic needs. If this person is providing those things, where else are they going to go for them? So I would say that that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. And then kind of with that stereotype, like this dramatic kidnapping, kind of on the other side of things, we hear a lot of language around rescue and, and that kind of ties back into this, this stereotype kind of Hollywood picture, like the movie Taken, Taken gets picked on a lot for, with good reason. So, you know, this child is, is kidnapped suddenly out of their home, they're trafficked and it's a horrific experience. And then here comes the big savior who blows things up and rescues them. And, and then they go back to life. Um, and the reality is so much more complex than that. I wish it was that easy and, and seemingly kind of simple to end a trafficking situation, but the reality is much different. So one thing that's really important to remember is, is when we use terms like rescue, we're kind of pointing the attention back at the savior rather than empowering the survivor. So the Avery, everyone at the Avery Center, we, we strongly encourage folks to use terms like exit or escape 
um, because there's absolutely individuals who escape in the middle of the night um, and have to make incredibly dangerous decisions. There's also individuals that exit, and that can be a slower transition as they gain access to just stability and resources in their community. So I would say that that's kind of the the summary of entry and exit um, into a trafficking situation and what the media tells us versus what reality usually is. Yeah, and especially right now, there's so many conspiracy theories going around about human trafficking. (laughs) I know, I really wanted to ask your opinion about this. I don't (laughs) know if you feel comfortable going that direction, but I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is how detrimental the conspiracy theories really are to people like you doing the work to help the real people in this situation. And so if you could speak to that, that would be awesome. That's my favorite drum to pound right now, because I don't think it can be said enough. There's people that are learning about trafficking and they're shocked and horrified by it. They're scared for their own kids and their communities. And they want to know more and they want to know what they can do to protect people around them, but they end up so misinformed. So I, yeah, so many, so, so many viral rumors going around and it's, it's so harmful. So one of the things to remember is that trafficking victims, we live and work and go to school and move around in society and use social media just like everybody else. And so when we are watching while while we're being trafficked, if we're watching the movie Taken and that doesn't align with our experiences, we think, well, what I'm experiencing is not trafficking. If that's trafficking, that's not the language for my experience. I've been told countless times in my public speaking that because kidnapping was not an element of my experience, that that I wasn't trafficked. So telling a victim, oh, that wasn't an assault, that wasn't rape, that wasn't trafficking, dismissing a victim who is actually advocating for themselves and speaking truth, that can be so harmful. And so, especially with social media, a lot of these viral posts, one of my favorite things on social media is to just scroll and read comment sections because I find human behavior just generally fascinating. It's always just so heartbreaking to see survivors speaking out on some of these threads and saying, you know, this wasn't my experience. I was trafficked and here's how it happened. So they're being vulnerable. They're talking and sharing their their most vulnerable points um, of their life with complete strangers in hopes of educating them and seeing people respond and saying, that's not trafficking, that's prostitution, or that you're an adult, we're worried about children. So some of these silencing comments, that's so hurtful. So I I think that's a harm. And then also just in general, with like the Wayfair rumors that happened over 2020, which was just mind boggling to me, but there was, it felt like there were several waves of viral stuff that happened over 2020 with human trafficking and we couldn't catch a break. But what I do know is that when things go viral like that, that are not true, it has such a negative impact on this field's ability to serve actual victims in a very real way. So Polaris, which is the National Human Trafficking Hotline, wonderful organization that I contract with for research and our service team utilizes their resources regularly. We, we highly recommend the use of their hotline to both service providers and victims and survivors who are needing support. And they were so slammed due to the Wayfair viral posts on social media. People were calling them 
and reporting what people perceive to be tips. And they did not have capacity to deal with all of these just most of it ended up being nothing. There was, there was not enough information there. It didn't meet the criteria of trafficking or they reported it to law enforcement and law enforcement ended up like law enforcement has to respond to every single report that they get. And so when they're getting reports that are going nowhere because people aren't understanding what trafficking actually looks like, they're so overwhelmed. It created such a strain on resources over 2020, where resources were already incredibly strained. So all of these agencies are less able to actually help victims who are coming in and legitimately victims and legitimately needing services. Law enforcement is not able to devote as much time to legitimate investigations because they're following up on all of these reports. So there's there's multiple ways that these rumors are so harmful. So it I, I cringe when I hear people say like, well, maybe it's not true, but it's just important that we talk about it. I don't think people really understand and think through kind of this domino effect of how damaging sharing those things can be with maybe the best intention of bringing awareness, but not understanding like the real life consequences of that. Definitely. So just to be clear, you don't think there's children in furniture at Wayfair? I just, I have to laugh because I'm just like, there's so many issues. And, and I mean, especially here, like in the U S like we love our conspiracy theories. I love hearing some of them, but this one really hits home because it, it directly impacts my life and my work. So the Wayfair rumors, I mean, it was very understandable what happened. So sellers were posting extremely high priced items on Wayfair. And it really, I don't understand the whole thing, but it really helps with their algorithms and managing their inventory. So they're actually usually not actually selling those products. That's why they're priced so incredibly high so that nobody purchases them but it maintains their storefront on that platform. So the thought of taking a kidnapping a child and shipping them in a piece of furniture to somebody and using an actual child government name that's listed on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website to advertise that that, that is the actual child that's being sold that piece sounds so like, why would a trafficker do that? They would change that child's name if they were going to be trafficking that child. They're not going to use their government name, especially if they've been reported to, you know, these agencies that are monitoring these things. So from start to finish, all of those pieces, you're just like this, can it happen? I'm sure stranger things have happened in the world. Nothing surprises me anymore. Is that really where it's happening though? And, and that's not necessary. When we think about how many how many missing and runaway kids are in our community, those kiddos are vulnerable right now in their community, in their neighborhood. How many kids are being abused in their own homes and trafficked within familial or gang networks? So the need to go through this like elaborate concoction of shipping children in cabinets and selling them online, there's really no need for that because vulnerable populations are so accessible in your community. Well, thank you for clarifying that. It baffles me. It just does. (laughs) I would really love to know or kind of bring light to the fact of what is really the goal of a trafficker? Is it to have power? Is it to gain money? Like what is their motivation for trafficking? 
Ooh, that's a good one. I, there's absolutely an element of like interpersonal violence and domestic violence. So that power and control cycle is absolutely a piece of it. Trafficking ultimately is the sale of people. Typically, we think of labor trafficking and sex trafficking as, as the two broad categories of forms of trafficking. Both of them are ultimately to make money. And that can look very different between sex trafficking and human tra- and labor trafficking. So labor trafficking, not always, but often people end up working for free or little to no wages so that business owners can cut corners. They can save money. Other times people really are working and generating direct revenue and their, their employer is taking that money from them. With sex trafficking, that individual's body is being utilized to generate money. So at the end of the day, it's profits. How those cash flows happen can look a little bit different, but it is it is a way of making money, whether it's through a legitimate business front or through an industry like the commercial sex trade. So there's so much manipulation and so much tied into it. It's so much deeper than I think a lot of people really even realize. And one thing I was thinking about while you were talking is how much we live in a culture of victim blaming and victim shaming and how prevalent that is in so many different areas, you know, rape cases, any, any case where a woman or someone is a victim of something, there's a lot of people who want to blame them for being a victim. And that's really a strong culture we live in. And so it seems like that culture would really perpetuate this system of human trafficking. Absolutely. I think part of it is just our culture being so individualistic of like, I got to where I am by myself. And if you work hard enough, you as an individual can be successful, however you define success. And so I think there's an intersection there with, with victim blaming of, well, you're where you're at because of the choices you made. And so that can be directed at somebody like, I don't know, like Bill Gates, who's immensely successful by our society standards. And, and we usually attribute that to like, you got to where you are because you've worked hard because you've made good decisions, whatever. But then we also flip that on victims and say, well, you ended up in the situation that you're in, you made those choices. And more so with sex trafficking, we see that so much with regards in general to the commercial sex trade. Well, you, you chose to go into prostitution and make better choices if you don't want those things to happen to you. Not really recognizing that person's actual true choices that are available to them at the time and and their life circumstances, their trauma history, their support system. I, I really do think it comes back to that kind of individualistic belief of you're on your own. You got to figure it out yourself and it's not my problem because as soon as it becomes my problem, I have to do something. I have to get involved. I'm accountable as well. And that's, I mean, that's an uncomfortable place to be. We've, I think we've seen that a little bit over this last year too, of people becoming aware of their responsibility to their community. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier for people to bury their head and pretend like it's not an issue than get involved and do the hard work. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that individualistic lack of real community, you know, every man for himself is so damaging in so many ways. Yes. 
Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I, I read here that you have done research in cultic theory, and this really tweaks my interest. <laughs> and so I would love to hear more about that. It really came about as a huge part of my own healing process. So when I first exited, I was maybe a year out. And here in Northern Colorado at that time was the height of the oil boom here in Colorado. And I had been trafficked up in the oil fields of North Dakota. And I knew kind of this dark underbelly of what an oil economic boom can do to a community. It does a lot of really great things. And there's this really dark underside. And having grown up in Greeley, just kind of looking around, like people have no idea what this community is already experiencing, but what is going to kind of explode here. So that was really at the point that I realized in my own healing journey that, you know, my, my traffickers used secrecy and shame and social isolation to maintain control over me. So doing public speaking events was very healing for me to be able to stand up and use my voice, tell my truth and take that power back in my community. And so I started speaking out at that time. And one of the very first times I spoke publicly, this woman came up to me and kind of paraphrasing the story here, but she said, I don't get why you didn't just leave. I'm really glad you started making better decisions. I don't really think that that's trafficking because you weren't chained up and you weren't kidnapped. And so I'm standing there like, I'm in therapy right now trying to figure this out because I don't know. I'm asking these questions. Why didn't I just leave? Why? Like I wasn't chained up. Why didn't I just walk out the door? I'm trying to figure this out. So I kind of made an offhand comment to her and I was like, oh, I, I guess it's like a cult. You get brainwashed into a belief system. Like, nice to meet you. Got to go. Bye. And thankfully I had a therapist and I had a, a great support system at the time that I was able to turn back to and say, like, I just was so hurt by this woman's comments, but it really, I mean, again, it could have been a really harmful point where I, I could have said like, screw it. Like, I'll just go back to what I know. What's the point if this is the response that I'm going to get from my own community. So I went home and, and really did some more work, but, but also started thinking about if I want to speak publicly, she's not the first person that's going to say that she's not the last person that's going to say that. And it ultimately wasn't malicious. She wasn't trying to hurt me. She was coming from a place of having watched Taken and Law and Order SVU and, and just, she had no frame of reference for this. So I, I realized I have to give people some kind of a, a framework or a point of reference that they can at least say, okay, so it's, it's not like this, but it's more like this. And so I thought about my cult reference to this woman and I went on Google and Googled cult characteristics and found a list by Dr. Lalik and Dr. Langoni, who are both cult experts. It's 15 characteristics. And I started reading through them. I was just mind blown because pimp controlled trafficking, which is a specific form of trafficking that I experienced, meets all 15 characteristics of a cultic group. And so I read that and then I, you know, started clicking around on the website and like pieces of my experience, I finally had an understanding to, I finally had language to understand like love bombing. I didn't, I didn't know what that was in that grooming process. That's what was happening. I was being showered with attention and, and gifts and love and attention to my children. 
It's love bombing. So being given that language was so empowering because now I can literally talk about the experiences that I've had and I can give people this framework to help them kind of understand this is actually what it looks like. It doesn't look like being kidnapped at Ikea. It, it doesn't look like a, a stranger in a dark alley. This is what it looks like. And so from that point, so that was, I want to say like 2015, I actually I have a whole bunch of cult books, but I've, I've literally devoured like every book I could get my hands on that was written by cult experts to just understand like, how does brainwashing happen? How does a trauma bond get formed? What's the difference between a trauma bond and Stockholm syndrome? And how do you get somebody out? How do you break that, that kind of spell that a trafficker has over their victim? And so, yeah, I've been doing research on that for the last five years. We just got a request from a publisher to submit, you know, the first couple chapters of a cultic theory book based on all of the research that myself and Dr. Henderson, my research partner, we've been working on. So we'll be, I'm actually headed to go on a writing re- retreat with her here in a couple of weeks to um, start putting those chapters together, but really excited to have that, that book. And we're kind of thinking maybe, maybe even two books, like one for clinicians and professionals from that perspective. And then one also for victims and survivors to be used more in that, like a psychoeducation intervention, like a tool and, and also in their healing process, just to understand what happened to me? How did this play out? Why did this go this way? Why was I told these things? Why did I believe these things? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's cultic theory. That's amazing. I can't wait to read it. I really <laughs> want to, <laughs> I'm going to find that article and put it in there. And then do you have an article? I have published, I have one peer reviewed piece out with Dr. Henderson on United Nations universities. Delta 8.7 publication. I can send you that link. And that one is specifically looking at recruitment strategies of traffickers through cultic theory lens. Wonderful. Yeah. I'd love to put that in the show notes as well. Definitely. That, that really interests me. And I, I want to dive more myself into learning because I almost feel like there's some similarities to I with my upbringing in a very, very religious background you know extreme severe like the conspiracy theories and all of that stuff and so it's that power over you know Mm -hmm. when you get into a situation where somebody is telling you they deserve to have power over you for some reason or another it breeds this kind of of thing taking advantage being able to control And so I've never really thought of it in the cultic lens before. So thank you for that perspective. And I'm excited to get my hands on all the books now. (laughs) I I just so enjoy reading everything. And Steve Hassan is one of the leading cult experts. And he actually helped develop a curriculum that was kind of envisioned by and, and led in the development of by several survivor leaders that are colleagues of mine. But they asked Steve Hassan to come in thinking from that kind of psychoeducation and intervention perspective of things. And so when I found out that he had developed that and and he was a cult expert, I was like, okay, so other people are seeing this parallel too. And and I think it's it's so interesting. I think it's Charles Manson he was actually a pimp before he became this little cult leader and basically weaponized these women to commit murders for him. So when you start to look at these parallels of pimps and 
and cult leaders, which, you know, there's all kinds of cults, including religious ones, absolutely. And even just, you know, high demand, high control groups, but their leaders are always extremely charismatic and likable, which then additionally makes it so hard for victims to speak out. They oftentimes have power and influence in the community. They're likable. People feel special being around them. And so it's so hard for people to believe when victims are saying, I'm being hurt, I'm being exploited by this person. It's so hard for people to believe that if they've not also experienced it. So traffickers are not just horribly mean people all the time. They're very likable. They know how to go into different situations. They're, they're like chameleons. They figure out what the environment needs them to be and they become that. So I, putting them in a category, I mean, diagnostically, you'd probably put them in the category of narcissism or antisocial. And Definitely. so, yeah, I always have told my daughter growing up, you know, having that knowledge about that personality trait, like you always need to be ultra aware of the people who seem to be too good to be true. Yes. Because they probably are. And so really understanding that dynamic and how good they are at that game. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've heard the saying, which has more of like a Christian religion component, but like the, the devil doesn't come to you in horns and, and a tail. The devil comes to you promising you everything you've ever wanted. And that's, I mean, that's abusers and predators broadly. They're not going to come up. So like when I talk with high schoolers, I always say, you know, show of hands, if somebody offered your job, you'd have to work 24 hours a day. You'd never get to eat. You'd probably get beaten a couple times a week and you wouldn't be allowed to be with your family and you couldn't keep your paychecks. Who wants to come with me? You know, the whole class is like, what is wrong with this lady? Like, why would anybody pick that? Like, exactly. Nobody's going to promise that. But if you have an employer that's saying, or an intimate partner, like, you know, come travel with me and you can bring several of your friends and we're going to stay in different hotels and we'll go out to eat at different restaurants. You'll get to meet people. You can party, you can do drugs, you can stay up late and, and you're going to make really good money. You're going to make a hundred dollars an hour or whatever it is. Who wants that job? Everybody is like, I want that job. And so that it, just like you said, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. You're listening to a podcast on the Loudspeaker Network. To find other podcasts and unique programming, visit www.loudspeaker.fm. Loudspeaker, diverse voices, unique sound. Feminist Hot Dog is back with a new season packed with awesome interviews with icons, artists, innovators, authors, and lots of surprises. Whether you consider yourself a hardcore feminist or you're feeling feminist curious, tune in Wednesday nights at 8 Mountain and get all the information and inspiration you need to live your best feminist life. Listen Wednesdays on Loudspeaker and Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. Warning, the following contains discussion of domestic violence, human trafficking, and sex trafficking, which may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I want to just switch gears a little bit and talk more about the Avery Center and about the services that you're providing there. What, what kinds of things happen 
within the center? Oh man, we have had such an exciting year this last year. So our primary program that historically has been locally based is our job training program. So women primarily exiting prostitution have a history of substance use, potentially have a history of experiencing homelessness. They maybe have criminal records. And so finding living wage employment is incredibly difficult. And that can be a huge barrier to being able to exit long-term. We want people to exit their exploitive situation and we want people to Um, kind of reintegrate into their community, but there's so many barriers that a lot of individuals end up going back because they have no other option. So we have a living wage employment program that's a uh, trauma-informed space that we've done a ton of work to make sure our physical environment is trauma-informed, communications, access to resources, just our hiring policies and general employment policies are informed. So that's our core program. With COVID, we were able to roll that program. It's about 75% remote now, which we've been able to double the capacity of that program so that it's it's even more accessible to more individuals. So that's been really exciting over this last year. We also offer peer support groups. So the curriculum that I was referencing, Ending the Game, we offer that. And then we also offer, so Ending the Game is for individuals who have kind of more self-identify or self-disclosed, have had involvement in the commercial sex trade or have experienced third-party trafficking. We have another curriculum called My Life, My Choice, which is geared towards kiddos ages 13 to 17 and really looks more at harm reduction and, you know, learning who can I trust? Who can I not trust? If I am in trouble, where can I go for help? How can I recognize predators and different disguises that they may utilize. So really focused on that kind of prevention piece. So kiddos that go through that are usually identified as at risk or suspected of experiencing exploitation, or maybe they've been identified as being associated with a known abuser, known predator in the community already. So we have those peer support groups. We have our national care package outreach program, and that is for pretty much anybody on on the spectrum of of the journey. So we have individuals um, across the United States and Canada that receive a monthly care package. So think of like Ipsy or Snapcrate. We do something similar, except they're at no cost um, to the individual. So folks that are currently experiencing exploitation, maybe in the in the process of exiting or transitioning out of their situation, and then individuals who have been exited for 15, 20 years or more and, and navigating their own healing journey. So those are kind of our core programs. Last year, it was an incredible year for us. We got two federal awards and a state award. The three of those total $1.6 million over the next three years to really expand capacity of our programs. So this year right now, we have one service coordinator and she has a caseload as of last month, I think it was 43. Um, individuals, almost all of whom are here local, which is, I mean, that's just an absurd caseload for one person. We, some of this funding will allow us to hire a couple more case managers, which I'm so excited. We're going to be posting those job listings here within the next couple of weeks, but we also got funds to start essentially a housing program for adult survivors and uh, their children. And I'm really, really, really excited about that because 
we started doing research back in 2017 with the explicit goal of figuring out what housing needs, like where were the gaps in our community for housing needs. So now four years later of collecting research and advocating and educating and grant applications and all of that, we're now going to be able to start offering housing. So I am super excited for that. We're not doing like a traditional safe home or residential program model. We're doing completely independent offsite housing and just providing supports with that housing. So really excited for that. We just started doing digital outreach online with, again, with COVID, we can't go out into the community the way that we used to. We can't network with other agencies in the same ways. We still do. It just looks very different as everybody's figuring out how do we do this? So we've started doing digital outreach and we've done two campaigns here in the state of Colorado over the last maybe month or six weeks. And I think it was like maybe a total of 10 days. We ran some social media campaigns. And in those 10 days, we've had six survivors who have never identified as survivors before, never received services as a trafficking survivor before they saw our ads and connected with our service coordinator. So that has been such an exciting kind of grand finale of 2020 of knowing there's six more people who have a little bit more language about their experience and are connected with services as they navigate what's next for themselves. So yeah, that, that's kind of a snapshot of our, our service arm. I want to go back to something really quickly. I think when you were talking, it reminded me about something that really hit me when I heard you speak at that event, and that is the criminal records. So you said a lot of women have criminal records, and that's something that you talked about was your criminal record from being trafficked. Mm -hmm. And I think that really goes back to what we were talking about with the victim blaming. And I would love to just have you talk about that quickly if you feel inclined. As an adult in the commercial sex trade, I was viewed as, as a consenting individual. And I think I had over 25 contacts with law enforcement over those five years, either, you know, domestic violence reports and call outs to our home, child welfare checks, and then being arrested. And so over a period of about a year yeah, it was almost exactly a year. I was arrested a total of 11 times and not once during those arrests was I ever screened for trafficking. I wasn't asked questions. I was just arrested for soliciting and trespassing and went to jail and had to bail myself out and pay the court fines and fees. I had to attend courses on why basically the harms of prostitution. So educating me on the fact that I was at risk for contracting HIV and AIDS, which I'm like, I... I'm very aware of that. I don't have another choice. That that That's just the reality of our criminal justice system here in the U.S. I, I know there's different studies that vary by jurisdiction, but I, I want to say it's roughly, so prostitution in the U.S., if both parties are over the age of 18, is illegal, except for in a couple counties in Nevada. So Las Vegas, it's actually illegal, even though it's people don't realize that, but there's counties outside of Vegas where there's legal brothels. But other than that, here in the United States, prostitution is illegal. But the reality is, is that it's something like out of, for every 10 arrests, prostitution related arrests, nine out of 10 are the women or the people who are selling sex. So the people that are trapped in prostitution, only one out of 10 is 
the buyer. The irony there is that there's roughly 10 times as many buyers as there are prostituted persons because it it takes that level of demand to drive the commercial sex trade. So those arrests were on my record. And when, you know, when I got arrested, my trafficker told me, you know, you're, you're making felony money and getting misdemeanor charges. And he was like, nobody is going to care about a misdemeanor. You're going to make so much money that you'll never have to, you know, be employed again anyway. So it doesn't really matter. But even if you get a job in the future, it's a misdemeanor. Nobody's going to look at it. And I believed my trafficker. I had no reason not, I don't know. I've never been in trouble. I don't know anybody that's ever been in trouble, but nothing could be further from the truth. So after exiting, trying to find a job and, you know, filling out applications, and then you don't hear from places after they run a background check. And like the reality started to settle in of actually those misdemeanors are, are serious offenses to people that don't understand why does this lady have so many prostitution and trespassing rec- you know, records? Like, what is she going to do in my place of business? So it's such a huge barrier. And, and I think I still have a lot of relative privilege with my criminal record. It was all misdemeanors. What about people who have felonies? And, and my misdemeanors were soliciting and trespassing. What about people who have substance use related charges or theft charges? Some of these things where there's so much social stigma around substance use disorders. And there's so much mistrust, especially in like retail businesses that often do have entry-level employment with theft charges or check fraud, those types of things. I had no violent crimes. I didn't get in any fights that I was arrested for. None of, none of that came onto my record. So if I was experiencing that many barriers and that much marginalization, how much more so do people who don't show up in the world with my, my relative privilege, how much more so do they experience those barriers? And Colorado, each state has their own kind of vacator laws. So here in Colorado, I want to say it was like 2015 or 2016, they just passed a vacator law for trafficking survivors. So I was one of the first in the state of Colorado to get my record sealed here under that statute, which was really neat. And I had an incredible attorney. I had a great positive experience as he he, he did all the advocacy work for me, helped with filing all the papers and, and got my record sealed. I also have a record in Las Vegas and, and they don't have a vacator law for trafficking survivors. What they do have is if you have not had any more arrests for three years, you can appeal to get your record sealed. But because I have so many arrests in Las Vegas, I have to go through that process with every single arrest. They don't allow you to just lump them together, even because it's literally like within the period of a year, a very clear pattern, but you cannot lump them together. So those barriers are so hard for people to overcome. Even going back to school, you know, going to UNC, you have to enter your social security number when you apply and they do a background check on you. And I had to go before the admissions board and explain to them why I had all of these arrests on my record. So there's so many barriers with criminal records. And again, in in a society that, especially when you have a criminal record, it, it was so hard to access resources because I wasn't viewed as a victim. I was viewed as somebody who had committed a crime. And one of my arrest slips, talk about this all the time because it's so like vividly etched into my, my memory. There's a line on arrest reports that you, the officer enters in, if there was a victim in the crime, they can put their name. 
on mine, it says victim and it says society. Seeing that on my arrest record, like I started to internalize that victim blaming that I'm doing this to other people. I'm making poor choices for myself and I'm hurting those around me when the reality was really the complete opposite. So yeah, I'll get off my soapbox with criminal record, but I feel so strongly about just employment practice reform. Colorado passed ban the box legislation, like maybe a year, year and a half ago. So applications in industries, like obviously as a therapist, you know, you can't have somebody with a sex offense counseling kids makes complete sense. So in industries where background checks really are required by law, that's kind of separate from this legislation. What it's intended for is when people fill out an, an application, if the, the question that says, have you ever been arrested or convicted and checking that box, that's no longer allowed in the state of Colorado on application forms. And the hope with that is helping people at least get in the door, at least get an interview before their application gets tossed out because people are making judgments on that box. And if you don't check the box and then they run a background check and they find your record, they throw you out. If you do check the box, you're not even going to get through the door. So uh, I think legislation like that, that you know, really has nothing to do with trafficking, but it it actually does have a lot to do with trafficking and and preventing and and responding to it kind of on both sides. Something that most people just don't even have an awareness about. Like I never would have thought of that. We were talking about how prostitution is is illegal pretty much everywhere in the United States. And I know I asked you this question at the event, but I'm gonna ask you here now too, how do you think the platform is like OnlyFans? And if you guys could see her face that she just made, how does that fit into that? Because that feels to me like a way that to legally traffic. I mean, it's it seems like a place where sex trafficking would just be huge. And it's a legal way to do prostitution, essentially. Yeah. I have so many thoughts about OnlyFans. What I can tell you is there is absolutely trafficking victims whose traffickers have set up accounts and are trafficking them on OnlyFans. I can say that with certainty. We have identified those accounts. We actually are starting a study. Our research interns start next week, which I'm really, I'm so excited. I need my, my nerd herd back. Always the holiday breaks and summer breaks are, I'm always like lonely. Where's all my nerds? We have a sample of a hundred individuals who have OnlyFans accounts. And we know just through kind of our Intel and some backend research that um, about two thirds of them uh, we refer to as our control group. So they're they're individuals that do not have like explicit indicators that they're currently under a trafficker. So they may, they're just not sharing it publicly. And and there's no way for us to know online if they do. Some of them may very well be individuals who are over the age of 18 and do not have a third-party facilitator. So that's our control group. And then the other third is confirmed trafficking victims that 100% we can verify they have a third-party facilitator right now. So what we're going to be looking at is the differences between that control group and this sample of trafficking victims to determine how do you tell if somebody is being trafficked on OnlyFans. And this is a question that we have heard from law enforcement because law enforcement's like, we 
if you're over the age of 18, you can sell new photos and videos of yourself. That's not illegal. So they can't do like undercover operations that will then hopefully lead to an investigation because there's actually no crime being committed up front at least. So law enforcement can't look into it unless there's an explicit report that gives them more context and information that's not visible online. So they're kind of, they're at a loss. I do some consulting work with financial institutions and they are looking at patterns on escort websites and social media and how cash transactions, digital um, money transactions happen. And they're like, those algorithms don't apply to OnlyFans. So they're like, okay, let's take these patterns and look at OnlyFans and it's not the same. And so they're at a loss. They're like, we don't, we don't know what to look for. We're spending weeks investigating into somebody only to find out like there's no indicator of third-party facilitator in this person's life. So I'm really excited. We'll probably have those findings ready to share probably mid-year this year because absolutely. And it's, I think a lot of people think that it's, it's harmless because you're not having direct contact with the actual purchaser of those videos or photos. So there's this perceived sense of safety of like, I'm in my own home and I'm just selling these photos to people who do whatever with them. But the reality is very different. And what we already know is, I mean, we had a local example, a girl started doing that at the beginning of COVID or college student, I should say, lost her job. And so she started posting photos and her partner got really insecure, which then fired up all this power and control that he was trying to exert over her. And so he started, you know, preventing her from being able to go see her friends, sabotaging anything she tried to do that wasn't, he wasn't able to come with her, going through her phone, accusing her of cheating. And that situation is just a trafficking time bomb waiting to happen. So I look forward and also I'm so, I'm so worried to see kind of the repercussions of this because it's, it's new and nobody knows what the long-term ramifications are going to be at any level, the physical harm, the stalking, the crazy fans, the blackmail. And, and it's, it's a younger, typically a younger population. I mean, I have teenagers and my son just found his, his YouTube channel. He used to do like do Lego animations when he was like 10 and he's 16 now. And he came up to me the other day and he's like, I just found my YouTube channel and I'm mortified and I can't remember the password to like delete everything. And I was like, Oh, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. And he's like, yeah, but anytime somebody Googles my name, that's going to come up. And I was like, good thing. It's only Lego animations. Like, please keep this in mind because Anything you put on the internet is forever, mm-hmm. even Legos, nudes, whatever it is. So it was a good learning point for him to have that discussion in, in about something that really isn't harmful, but kind of that reminder of like, oh my gosh, everything on the internet is forever. And we don't know what that's going to look like yet. I feel like we could just keep going for another hour. There's so much to this because it makes me, it, one thing leads to another. Like it makes me think about pornography. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I think Pornhub is in the spotlight right now. And because of the horrific accounts of child exploitation, sexual assault, human trafficking, They've deleted millions of videos off their platform because they cannot verify who the users are, who the the content contributors are. And 
And I think it's really good for people to understand what's happening. So kind of putting this moral debate to the side, let's not talk about right or wrong, good or bad, sinful, whatever. Let's actually look at what's happening to like the chemical makeup in your brain and how it impacts your ability to have relationships and connections with other people. What has been the most vital to your growth? I think ultimately it really boils down. And this is something that I tell my staff all the time, being a theorist. So I use Pierre Bourdieu's theory on capital, sociological framework. There's four forms of capital. And what our research has shown with trafficking survivors is that social capital is most important. Education, economic assets, capital, can those can all be built back. That social capital component is what traffickers ultimately strip away and survivors that do not have that social capital or have so much complex trauma and interpersonal trauma that having relationships is hard for them. They struggle, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years after exiting because they don't have that component. So I think just trusting safe relationships are so, so important. If you don't have those, it's so hard to move. It, I mean, it's impossible to move forward in your healing. You cannot just exist in a silo and, and heal as a person and move through society. You have to heal within the context of community and relationships. Yeah, that's good. I think it's Brene Brown that says a social wound needs a social bomb. I love which, that. I love Brene. Me too. I'm like, she's a researcher and she's a public speaker. And like, she's, I just, I love her. Me too. You can uh, be your BFF and me too. You just have to take me. You can do research together. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So walking away from this podcast, what do you want people to take with them? What do you want to make sure that they know? Okay. I want people to know that trafficking is happening in their community. It's happening in our community where you have vulnerable people, you have exploitation and And I also think that so many people feel so overwhelmed with, I mean, learning about trafficking, but then wanting to get involved and then feeling discouraged because they're like, well, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a social worker. I don't, I don't want to start a nonprofit. Those aren't the only ways that people can get involved in this work. There's so many ways to use time, talent, and treasure to, to make an impact and prevent and respond to trafficking. So it can be as seemingly simple as, as a parent monitoring your child's social media use, you are preventing trafficking by doing that. If you are an employer, making sure that you have workplace policies and hiring practices that are inclusive of marginalized populations and accessible to people who maybe just don't show up in the world with as much privilege making sure that those folks have living wages, you are preventing trafficking and, and lots of ways to get involved directly with anti-trafficking work too. I mean, we've had retirees do like copy editing of content for us, do gardening at our office space and painting and organizing shelves. We've had individuals teach computer classes to our job program participants. We've had volunteers come in and teach cooking classes I mean, there's so many ways to get involved. So whatever your talent is, whatever sector of of community that you connected with or work in, there's a way for you to be preventing and responding to trafficking. 
That's huge. So can people help in your organization or are they, if they're in Northern Colorado? Absolutely. Our entire volunteer application and onboarding process is now online, which I am so excited for. We just got that put together within the last month. So you can go to the averycenter.org. There's a page um, specifically for volunteers, really user-friendly step-by-step process to get set up as a volunteer, depending on the individual and, and kind of what their preferences are in terms of volunteering. Typically they will sit down and meet with either myself or Danae, our director of services, and talk through what their interests are, what their availability is. We of course have events like, you know, yard cleanup day and that kind of stuff that we need hands for, but we also really want to connect with our volunteers and hear what, what are they interested in? What are they good at? um, What are they passionate about and how can um, we use that passion and those skills to plug into our organization. So we have two volunteers actually who are interested in research and they both have so much more experience than me. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be asking you guys so many questions, but they recognize that that's their skill set and that's their interest. And so they work with us and our interns and our research team. So yeah, they can absolutely get connected in that way. We have online storefronts for our job training program. So any of the sales from those online storefronts directly support living wages for the survivors in our job training program. All of that, again, is on our website, averycenter.org. You can read about our job program and the links to all of our online storefronts. And we have crackle corn, which is delicious. Sarah, I will have to send you some, but we are launching that here in the next couple of weeks. So we'll have another product line available here shortly. It's the most amazing goodie. Oh my gosh. It's just so good. That's awesome. I need to order some. (laughs) You have to let me know when it's available. (laughs) I will. It's so dangerous. Like I don't keep it in my house because I will just eat the entire bag. Like you can't That's funny. So you've given some great resources throughout the entire podcast too, for people who are not local, maybe people who can't volunteer here in your organization, but is there anything you would add to that for people who are out of state uh, way to get involved? The Avery Center is not the only organization in this field by any means. There's so many great organizations doing great work around the country. Organizations like Polaris, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, they are occasionally looking for advocates, hotline advocates. Shared Hope International is another um, great organization with lots of ways to get involved, kind of sending, sending individuals and equipping them to go out into their own community and increase awareness. And I would, I would encourage everybody to support survivor-founded and survivor-centered organizations. Rebecca Bender Initiative, she has Elevate Academy. The organization, she's uh, national, so all of her work is done online. The Organization for Prostitution Survivors is based in Seattle. Washington. There's there's so many incredible organizations around the country. Gems in New York City, Anna's Place in Boston. So many so many great organizations that are founded and run by survivors. And I would highly encourage people to get connected and learn about what's in their area. I hope you know what an inspiration you are because I think really you're an example of how someone can take the pain and the hard things that they've experienced and turn them into purpose and helping other people and 
you know, really creating a mission and just a way to help other people who have ex- who've experienced or are experiencing those same things that you did. So thank you so much for your work that you're doing. And thank you for being here and sharing this with us. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And if there's survivors that are, are listening to this, we would love for you to reach out to the Avery Center as well. Know that you are not alone and we're here to support your journey. Thank you for listening to the WE podcast. I'm so grateful you were able to show up with us in this space. If you'd like to connect, please look for links to our social media and ways to get in touch in the show notes. This show is produced by Loudspeaker Networks. Also, credit to my talented daughter for creating my show music. You can find more of the Wee Podcast, as well as many other awesome things on the network at loudspeaker.fm. If you've heard something that touched you, please don't forget to share with your friends. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, show up for the hard conversations, choose growth, and always know that you are not on this journey alone. See you next time. Note, we fully understand that not all people involved in platforms like OnlyFans and Pornhub are victims and everyone has a right to their own sexual expression. Some of the claims about these platforms have been disputed. And as in everything there are multiple sides of the coin. In this episode we focused on trafficking, not those engaging in the platforms of their own free will. Further discussion is needed, and we'll return to this topic in a future episode. This has been a production of Loudspeaker Networks. For more on this and other programs, visit loudspeaker.fm.